they probably don't get enough credit, but uh, don't you appreciate the time and the talent that God has put together up on this stage? I really appreciate that. <clears throat> yeah, that was a bit of a throwback song, but it ties in with the message of what we're going to be talking about as we have been working through our, our, our Faith Does series. We're working through all these different themes that James is giving us. We're going to be talking about just how we are to accept one another. So turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 3, 1 to 13. James basically says this. I'm quoting out of the New American Standard. He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man wearing dirty clothes, and you say to the one wearing fine clothes, sit here in the good seat, and you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the, the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the, the, the fair name by which you are called? If you are keeping the royal law, you should love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. The one who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become guilty and transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless on the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. My friends, do you realize that you and I, we're a trophy of God's grace every day? Do you realize that when we go out into the world that we are a, a, a picture of redemption, of how God takes us from one place to another place, from an old value system to a brand new value system? And in the old value system, what we did is we loved ourselves, didn't we? We were really, really good at loving ourselves, looking after ourselves. But in the new value system, what happens is God says, now you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And you are now to love one another as yourself. See, this is the new value system that God has for each and every one of us. And that is the power in our witness. 
Do you realize that when the lost world sees the unity of the body of Christ, it's powerful? In Galatians, I think of Galatians 6.10, it says that we are to do good to everyone, especially to the household of believers. Why does he say that? He says that because the witness starts right here. If the world looks into the church and sees that we're backbiting and that we're divided and that we're following after our own little preferences and we're nitpicking after this and that, then the world sees it and says, why do I want to be a part of that? But when they see a unity within the body of Christ, when they see us united on one cause, and that is the cause of Jesus Christ and the gospel, man, that is a powerful witness. And I am so thankful that we have a body that is growing in its unity. Yesterday, my wife and I, we, uh, we, we were ministered to by the students at, at Mission View. Now, our house was invaded. We did the, they're doing this mulch madness, and part of it is to raise funds and awareness of the mission projects that they're going to be doing this summer. And so we had different teams come, and they went to a lot of different homes, and they came over to our house, and they started doing the mulch, and it was an awesome thing. You can see the different slides here. This is, I think, the A team, and now we got the B team, and... They just did a phenomenal job. I want you to know they saved me about a full month's work uh, in doing the mulch at our house. And plus they had a goal of, of raising awareness and raising enough money to help with their mission project, which I was so glad that they have sweat, sweat equity into it. Their goal was to raise $1,600, and they raised $1,700 in one day. So that was an awesome, awesome thing. I'm encouraged by our students and the youth ministry that we have in this ministry. You know, what God wants is he wants us to, to love each other. He wants us to love each other in a unique and an abundant way. But you know what? It takes us out into our community as well. This summer, we have all kinds of things that are going to be happening. And I want to encourage you to be thinking about how you will be a part of the different outreaches. The next outreach we have is actually at the end of this month on May 21st. And we're going to do something brand new. And you might say, Steve, where'd you get this crazy idea of doing laundry for people? Well, we're calling it Laundry Love, but it's not our idea. There was another church in Columbus that we've consulted with. We've, uh, we try to get ideas from different people, see what has worked, and they have found this to be a phenomenal thing. Watch this, and I want to encourage you to think about how you could be a part of this. What's going to happen on May 21st, we're going to, from 10 to 11, we're going to go down to the suds and duds and we're going to, uh, we're going to wash clothes for people. We're going to have an inflatable out there. We're going to have some stuff for the kids to do. We're going to have uh, Dave Henderson out there with a grill cooking hot dogs for people. And um, all right now, I know we have the students that are invested. They're going to be coming. The spots is going to be coming. At least maybe I let the cat out of the bag. I don't know. But they're going to be helping out with this. I want adults there too. Let's not let the students do all the leading here. Let's let, let's let the adults come and join them in this. And we need about 10, 10 to 15 people to help out. You can go online and that you can uh, sign up. And I think it's going to be an incredible time for us to be doing that. But why? We want to show the love of God in the world. You know, Lady Justice, Lady Justice is blind. She sees all people as equal. 
And she, uh, that's what justice is all about. Well, Christians are to be the same way. We are to see all people, not for their race, not for, not for their status in life. We are to see them for who they are, and we are to begin there in our ministry. So that's what James is going to talk to us about today. So let's take a look at our passage. James chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 to 13, but to, to set the context, I want you to look at the last two verses of chapter 1. The last two verses of chapter 1 set the tone for what this passage is going to talk about today. And by the way, I think Adam did a phenomenal job last week in presenting the word. I was very encouraged with that. And to see the students out there greeting, to them being up on stage, it was awesome to see that happen. But the last two verses says this. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now remember, Adam talked about we are to be righteous. We are to pursue righteousness in our life. And so this is basically James saying, if you want to be righteous, this is what you got to do. If you want to be righteous, you bridle your tongue and that you, uh, that you, you have self-control, that there is not deceit in your heart. He says in verse 27, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained by the world. Now what's James doing? He's saying there's three qualities of a believer. Three qualities. The number one quality is that the believer is not focused on himself. Is not focused on himself. He says he talks about the believer not having self-deception and bridling his own tongue. What was he talking about? Well, the word deceive in this passage means to be misled or seduced into thinking. James knows that our tendency as human beings is to be seduced into the idea that we are better than we really are and that we are the focal point in life. And we use this thing to prop ourselves up, the tongue. And so James is saying, don't deceive your heart. Don't use your tongue for self-edification. That's not pure religion. Don't just talk about your religion. Just don't talk about your faith. You are to live it out. And so the second thing he says is the way that we live it out, the way that it's pure and undefiled is to show mercy and grace and love to those that are oppressed. Now, he says this in pointing out the least of these in this society. The least of these that were in this society were called orphans and widows. Why were they the least? They were the least because these were the poorest people, they were the neediest people, and they were the people that had absolutely no way to pay back for what kindness was shown to them. There was really no benefit to the person that actually showed the kindness because there would be no reciprocation of any kind. And basically, James is saying, you, when you minister to the needy, when you know that there's not even a way for you to be paid back again, you know that you're doing what is right because it is pure. It is, you are helping the helpless. You are coming alongside of that orphan that has no home and you're taking that person into your home. I'm so thankful for those of you that are in, that believe in adoption, that believe in coming alongside of the orphans. What an awesome thing 
for you to be able to do that. More in the body should prayerfully consider doing that because there's still a great need in our society. But what's the point? James is saying, number one, we're not to focus on ourselves. Number two, we're to focus on others, especially those that are within need within our society. And finally, he says, we're to keep ourselves unstained by the world. Now, the word unstained is a really interesting word in the original language. It is a phrase that's taken us back to the Old Testament. Do you remember in the Old Testament what kind of animal they were to sacrifice to God? What kind of animal was it? It was an unstained and unblemished animal. And they would uh, submit that before the Lord and they would sacrifice it. Now, James is taken to this Jewish audience who immediately connected with this they immediately, he says, this is what I want you to be. We are to be unstained. We are now to be that living sacrifice. That's what, uh, that's what Paul called it in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that we are to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, as an offering of worship to God. And what he is saying is that there's a transfer from the old way that we did things that was filled with stain, that was filled with blemish, and now we are to live that unstained life that we are to live an unblemished life because we reflect the character of Christ in the way that we live, in the way that we worship, in the way that we operate in the world. Do you realize that we, when we work in the workplace and we live the blemished life, going back to our old roots, that it mars the name of Christ? What God wants is an undefiled, unblemished lifestyle for us. Now, all of that sets the tone for what we're going to talk about today in chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Because there was a situation in the church. The situation was this, that many, some of the church members were going back to an old value system. Because when we change, we're no longer living according to that old value system. We have God's values, God's purpose. And he's saying, you're going back to an old value system in that they were looking in a discriminatory way to different people and giving favoritism to the rich and ignoring the poor. And so James is going to give a situation to help instruct them in what to do. So let's take a look at the command in verse 1. This is what he commands them. He says, show no partiality. Look at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality. That's stated in an emphatic way, a command way. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Every word matters in this verse. If you want to understand this whole passage, it starts by understanding the command here. Now the command is to show no partiality. Now, the phrase partiality means favoritism in the sense that we look at somebody and accept one over the other because of their race, because of their appearance, because of their wealth, because of their ranking in life, because of their social status. And James says we are not to hold any kind of favoritism within the body of Christ. We're not to do that. Then he goes on and he says, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, I want you to think about that. The faith he's talking about is not the personal faith. That's assumed that that is there within the believer. He is talking about the corporate faith. He is saying the faith that we have as a church, as a body of Christ, that is focused on one person who? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
If you want an example of how we are to live out our faith, you look at Jesus Christ and you can see the example. Think about what Jesus did. Jesus left the glory of heaven. He left the wealth of heaven in order for him to be born in a filthy manger. He grew up in Bethlehem, or he was born in Bethlehem, but then grew up in a humble village of Nazareth that nobody thought anybody would come out of Nazareth during his early ministry. And during his, or during his childhood. And during his early ministry, he showed no partiality. People would say, people that didn't know God made the comment, well, master, teacher, we know that you are not partial to people. We know that you don't, you're not a respecter of persons. He ministered in areas that nobody else wanted to minister to. In the, the religious leaders of the day, they thought of, uh, of Galilee and Samaria as subpar places, and yet that is exactly the places that Jesus ministered to. In Jesus' own genealogy, there were non-elites that were in his heritage. There was Rahab the harlot, Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, and you can see it there. What's the point? Jesus came to, uh, to minister due to where we were, all of us. We were all in poverty. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, look at this verse. It'll be on the screen. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he what? He became poor. He became poor so that through his poverty you might be what? rich so that you could be rich ephesians chapter 2 this theme is throughout the scripture he says this because of his great love for us god who is what say it with me rich in mercy i want you we're going to participate today okay rich in mercy he made us alive with christ even when we were dead in our transgressions it is by grace you have been saved you see, the entire foundation of Christianity is built on Jesus seeing us in our poverty, seeing that we are sick sinners in need of someone to come and rescue us. And that's what he did. He saw our poverty, and he wanted to impart to us the greatest riches ever known to man, and that was his grace. That was his mercy. My friends, that is the foundation of what we are to do for everybody else. He first set the example. And here's the faith principle number one. If you're keeping notes, I'd encourage you to think about this. The entire basis of faith is, is non-favoritism. The entire basis of our faith is built on non-favoritism. God saw us in our depravity. He saw us in our need and that's the model by which we should be living our life. Now he goes on in the passage, and he goes from giving the command to a situation. Now I think that this may have been a hypothetical situation that was one of those situations that was really close to reality. And so he gives this situation. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and you pay special attention to the one wearing fine clothes, and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my feet. 
Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, this situation was very much like our situation on Sunday. They gathered together to worship in their assembly time. And so this was their time for them to gather together and worship. Now what's interesting, in Jewish culture, it wasn't uncommon for men to wear rings. More rings than just a wedding band. They wore them. It was just a part of their culture. If you go over to Turkey, Pastor Ramazan I, always has like all these rings on. That's part of his culture. By the way, Pastor Ramazan will be presenting the word next Sunday. I'm excited that he will be with us to share the word with us. But that was a part of their culture. But if somebody had a gold ring, that wasn't as common because gold was rare. And for and historians say that if somebody was like uber rich, they would have gold rings on every finger except the middle finger in order to show their wealth. It was meant to be an open display of their wealth. The other thing that they would do is they would dress in a very, what we might consider a very ornate way, kind of gaudy, kind of just out there. You'd say, I don't know that I'd wear that. Well, that was very common for those that were rich. Now, this person that came in was separating himself from the common man because that was his mindset. Now, what's interesting is he probably was a lost person coming into their assembly. Maybe he was invested into by somebody within that body. Maybe he was invited, but most likely he was someone that did not know Christ. Interestingly, James doesn't condemn the flashy man. He doesn't say anything about him because lost people, he doesn't expect them to live to Christian standards. But what he does do is he condemns and, and criticizes the church for their flattery reaction to this man. Now in this situation, as it unfolds, there was a second person that came in who was just as obvious as the rich person. It was the poor man. And why was he so obvious? Well, the rich man was dressing elaborate and standing out amongst the people. The poor man was in such dirty, filthy clothes that he stood out amongst the rest. He was below the standards of where everybody else was. Now, it's interesting. He probably as well was a lost person, invited to be a part of that assembly time. Now, what's, what took place there in their assembly halls, they didn't have rows like we had. They would often have a lot of empty spots where they would either sit, sit on the floor or stand up. Sometimes around the perimeter of the room, there would be seats, and right in the front, there might be some seats. What's interesting is the rich man is told, you sit right here in the good place, and the poor man is specifically addressed and said, you go ahead and just, just sit down or stand up with, with everybody else. And so he is treated clearly in a different way than the rest. And then James says in verse 4, he says this, have you not made distinctions, distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Now think about this with me. Engage your mind. Engage your mind. The phrase, judges with evil thoughts, could also be translated this way. Judges with vicious intentions. Judges with vicious intentions. See, this is a classic case of a church that forgets its mission to reach the lost. 
And instead of thinking about how they can reach somebody for Christ, they're thinking about the potential donation that could come to their group or their assembly because this rich man is here. And so what they have done is inadvertently, they have shifted back to a worldly system. Isn't that what we do in the world? Don't we take special attention to those that are wealthy? Maybe it can affect my political party. Maybe it can affect my standing in in my job. Maybe if I hitch my wagon to this person, it's going to do something. That's a world system. And what the church was doing is that they were forgetting their mission. My friends, the church can forget its mission so quickly, so quickly. And what he's reminding us is the mission of the church is to be focused. This is our faith principle number two. The church is to be focused on the souls of men, not their pocketbooks. Friends, if you are new to Mission View, our intentions are not the money that's in your wallet. Our intention, we want you, if you're going to give to this ministry, we want it to flow because you believe in the mission. Because this is something you want to get behind. But I don't care how wealthy you are, I don't care how poor you are, our intention is not your pocketbook. But church, please know this, we can lose our focus super easy. There are a lot of non-essentials in the church, you know that? What, meeting here, for example, in this building, this is a non-essential. It's essential that we gather somewhere. Some places in the world, they gather under a tree. They gather in a chicken coop. They gather in uh, outdoor assemblies. There's all kinds of places. There's all kinds of places in this city that we could gather. This is a non-essential. But what is essential is the preaching of God's Word. That's essential. It's a non-essential, the programs that we have in the ministry. It's great to have a youth ministry. It's great to have a children's ministry. But do you realize we could survive without it? We could really do without it. I don't want to do without it, but it's not the essential. You know what is the essential? It's the Word of God that we teach, and it's the people that we try to reach with the the grace of God. You know, when we come in here, we sometimes all like our different styles of worship. Some of us like slow. Some of us like fast. I want you to know, that's not essential. It's not essential. But what is essential is the fact that we're singing the Word of God. That we are singing what is theologically sound that takes our minds and our hearts to understanding who God is. We can miss the essentials by getting caught up in the non-essentials. And so this this is the admonition in this passage. Now James goes on to another issue. He moves now to some questions. Do you realize, have you ever had a parent that just asked questions to you and you knew that they were trying to get at something? They just look at you and say, Stephen, what are you thinking about? Stephen, did you really think that one through? I mean, parents have this way of just asking these piercing questions. Yes, I know, I know. Our wives can do that too. And and husbands can do it as well. We ask questions of each other. And this is what James does. He wants us to engage our mind. And here's the questions. He says, listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Question after question after question. What's he doing? 
Well, there's kind of two categories of questions. The first category of question was, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom to those who love him? What's that sound like? It sounds like James is reminiscing to what his half-brother, Jesus, said on the Sermon on the Mount. You remember Jesus preaching on the Sermon on the Mount? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, James wasn't saved at that time, but he certainly got that message. He certainly knew what Jesus taught. See, this is what Jesus was trying to teach, and James is reminding that God has a place for those that have less. Why? It's because those are the people that often recognize that they have nothing, and so they need God more than anything. I can't tell you how many times that wealth has been a hindrance to somebody coming to faith in Christ because they have their sufficiency built in those things. But when you're poor, you need Christ. You need him desperately. Now, the second set of questions is get, bringing them into that culture. He says, is not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones that blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? He, James is basically reminding the church, hey, you know that some of you are under legal oppression by those that are wealthy. They're dragging you into court. They're trying to get everything they can from you. They are oppressing you. It's not necessarily the guy that came into their assembly, but he's saying, you got to be wise in thinking this through this is the this is the case of those that were were taking advantage of them now what was the principle that james is trying to get across here's the principle true wealth is found in the gospel true wealth is found in the gospel the wealth is found in jesus christ i can remember years ago when i was a youth pastor i took a group of kids to mexico and we went specifically to work in a community that was known to be a very, very poor community. Now, I got to tell you that when we got to this community, it really shook every single one of us because what we found was cardboard houses, some houses that were made out of corrugated metal, some road signs or road scraps that they found. And this was the, the, the entire community was like this. And there was a little church that we were going to do our VBS in, and it looked more like a chicken coop than anything else. And that is exactly where we were going to minister. Now, the people, when, they had, when people had to use the restroom, they basically had four poles in the mud with a piece of cloth that had all kinds of holes in it, wrapped around it. You would in there, and there was just a hole dug in the ground. And from that hole, there was a drainage of sewage that came from it, and their pigs wallowed in that, and that became their meal later. And so this was the extreme poverty that we were the, uh, uh, experiencing. And so I got to say that myself as well as the team, every single one of us, when we first went into that community, we wanted to leave. This was disgusting. I felt like I needed to take a bath in Purell. This is, and, and I, I hate to admit that thought, but that's exactly what my students thought as well. But we said, we came 2,000 miles, let's minister. And so we started doing ministry, and God started changing our hearts. 
And we saw that these kids were so desperate to hear about Jesus. And not only the children, by midweek, the parents were coming to this VBS. There were hundreds upon hundreds of children that were coming to this VBS. And by the end of the week, we stayed so long in the day that eventually the nationals are like, hey, we want to play a soccer game against America. Mexico against America. Let's do it. The only problem was none of my crew knew how to play soccer. None of us. We were horrible. And so we said, okay, we'll do it anyways. And we were on a dirt and glass field, and we were playing soccer with the, with the adults, not the kids now, the adults, and they crucified us. It was a slaughter. They just took us and defeated us like crazy. In fact, they started putting nationals on our team because they felt so bad for us. But at the very end, the whole community had gathered, and they, there was probably four or 500 people that were watching this game. And there was a hillside. I'll never forget it. And I asked at the end of the game if everybody would mind taking a seat on the hillside. And the Spirit of God had placed upon my heart, and He had broken my heart for my own arrogance and for my own selfishness. And I began to proclaim the Word of God and to be able to share the testimony of what Christ had done in my life and to share the gospel. And on that day, I wish I could say there was mass revival. There wasn't, but there were a handful of people that acknowledged they needed Christ. And we gave out a lot of New Testaments. And what was interesting is that my students, by the end of the week, they started labeling that city the city of joy. The city of joy. We went from this place of filth, this place of disgusting nature, I mean, everything... To joy. My friends, what made the difference in our perspective? We realize that true wealth is found in the gospel. True wealth is found in the gospel. And the gospel is blind to where people are in life. James concludes this by saying, okay guys, there's a royal law that we hold to. There's a royal law that we hold to and he reminds them of that royal law. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Now he gives the word if because there is an element of doubt there. There is a sense of, uh, of sarcasm with James here saying, I know you say you fulfill the royal law, but are you really doing that? Now, he calls it the royal law because it came from royalty. King Jesus shared it in Matthew 22 and many other places, and it actually came from the Old Testament. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, that's the Shema, and we are to love our neighbor as ourself. So this was part of their rich heritage, and he's saying, this is what we are to do. The impact that we make is going to be seen in the love that we have for the people that are around us. You know, I talk about our core, our circle of responsibility here at Mission View. I, I, got a, I got a little secret for you. It wasn't my idea. It was Jesus's. And Jesus said that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to have our core, the circle of influences of those that are around us. And here's faith principle number four. Love will always open the door for the gospel. And that's what James is reminding the people here. And then he moves right into instruction. He goes right into instruction of what they are to be. He says, 
first of all, he wants to point out, he points out four things. He says, first of all, favoritism is a sin. Favoritism is a sin. You need to know that as a believer. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Plain and simple, when we give preferential treatment to people because of their wealth, we are sinning against God because we move away from God's value system. And you know, it's not just wealthy people. It's when we give preferential treatment to other people in different societies or different classes, or, or it could be way beyond wealth. But the principle is this. When we show favoritism, it's sin. Number two, he says, don't minimize your sin. This sounds a little strange to us, what he says. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. What's James doing there? What James is doing is he's helping head off those that would rationalize their sin. He knew that there would be some that would dismiss their prejudice as not that bad. It was a small matter. And to show this, James basically shows the absurdity in their inconsistency in their obedience. You can't say, oh, I obey this, but I'm just going to be blind to this. You can't do that. And James is really calling them to repentance. And he is saying, repent of your sin. Repent of this, this arrogance that you have in your heart. And I would, we would be naive to say that that's not true of us. Oh, no, 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 this, 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 that's, not, that's not true of me at all. I think God would have us all evaluate, is there any of this in our own heart that we have to repent of? And then he says, we will be judged. Look at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Now what was the law of liberty? The law of liberty was God's word. It was God's command. And we know that Jesus said God's command would do what? It, the truth will set you free. But it's also the truth by which we will be judged. Do you realize that there will be a Christian judgment? This is a sobering reminder for every one of us. We will stand before as believers before God. And this is what we're told in 2 Corinthians. It says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due, what he has done in the body, whether good or bad, good or evil. It's hard to believe that as believers that we will be accountable for evil. But it implies that we are capable still of doing things that are wrong. And God says we'll be held accountable. And finally, he says, God is looking for mercy in us. Notice what he says in verse 13. For judgment will be without mercy to the one who shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. See, James concludes with a sobering statement that we will be judged with the same standard by which we judge other people. And when we show no mercy, God will show in like manner to us. And I don't understand everything about this future judgment. I cannot even begin to comprehend this. I think there's things that we don't understand. We think immediately when we die and when we go before God, it's all going to be bells and whistles and angels singing and hallelujahs. But there is going to be an accountability for our life. No, I don't believe sin will be the issue because we're covered under the blood of Christ. But obedience will be the issue. 
And there are people within the church that are simply sitting on their rear ends doing absolutely nothing for the kingdom. And God will hold us accountable for that. And that's what James is trying to sink into these believers. Don't go back to this old value system. you got a new value system. Prioritize your life. Love God with all your heart. Love your wife. Love your family. Serve God and do it effectively in your job with integrity. And you are to keep these priorities and live it out and serve Him with all your heart. Do not coast in life because we are held accountable. That's a hard message. But it's exactly what James wanted the church to understand. So what do we get from this? Three things. So we get pro- we're going to have just a time of worship here. I'm going to have the worship team come up. But I want you to think about these things. Number one, we're to live out the gospel before all people. For all, before all people. It doesn't matter if they are rich or poor. It doesn't matter if they are gay or straight. It doesn't matter if they are Democrats or Republicans. It doesn't matter if they are male or female. It doesn't matter if they're gender-specific or gender-neutral. It doesn't matter if they're a moralist or heathen-like. It doesn't matter if they're an idolater or an idolater. It doesn't matter if they are drunkard or a cross-dresser. It doesn't matter if they are a prostitute or a priest. Our banner is love all the time. Our message is Christ crucified, him being buried and risen from the grave. And our goal is that everybody would be washed by the blood of Christ that would be seen righteous and would move from their previous state to the new state, the new value system, and the new joy that he wants to give within everybody. We are to live out the gospel before all people. Number two, we are to never let wealth drive us as a person. Paul said to the church, to the church and to individuals in 1 Timothy 6, verse 9, he said, People who want to get rich fall into temptations and a trap and to many foolish, harmful desires and plunge men into ruin and destruction. I love what David Platt says about this in his book, Counterculture. He says this. I'm going to quote him. I agree with it. Most people in our culture and in the church believe wealth is always a sign of blessing from God. And we have almost no category for understanding wealth as actually a barrier to God. He goes on to say the Bible teaches that God gives us more, so not so that we can have more for us, so that we can give more. So that we can give more. God has not given us excess money simply to indulge in earthly pleasures that will fade away. He has given us money to invest into eternal treasures that will last forever. And finally, what do we take away? Mercy should characterize our life. Why? Because that's what characterized Jesus. And we are Christians. Christ followers little Christs. And as we sing these next two songs, what I'm going to challenge you to do is engage your mind and your heart into the words of these songs and ask God for this to be a time of dedication in these two songs as we think through this and ask God to do something special in your own heart.